Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, uh, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me this week is the cricket enthusiast and uh, investment trust guru, Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Wickerfield Securities. Simon, it's good to talk to you again this week. Let's kick off, not by talking about the cricket, where I think the news is looking quite good for the England team at least, but let's talk about the markets and what's been happening so far this week. Well, uh, as you mentioned, it's been a pretty good period for the England cricket team, but it's also been a pretty good period for the market as well. Certainly for the first four days of this week, the investment company sector is up about 2.5%, and that represents an outperformance of the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share up 0.6% in that period. In terms of the sector average discount, well, that's narrowed in a little as well. So probably started the week about 2.4%, and sent at the close of Thursday, that stood at 2.1%. But as always, a very interesting week for the markets. A lot of focus on the central banks this week. We had the news earlier in the week that the Federal Reserve had decided to scale back its $120 billion monthly bond buying program, so tapering as known. Um, And also, more recently, the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee in the UK have decided not to raise interest rates, decided to keep it at 0.1% at least for now, but it does seem likely that there is a hike on the way, possibly ahead of Christmas. Also a lot of media attention on COP26, and that has definitely had an influence on a lot of the market announcements and a lot of the uh, investment themes that people are talking about at the moment. But with only 38 trading days remaining of the year, and the UK market already up nearly 17%, one wonders whether um, there's another leg to come. Indeed. Well, we often do see a rally into Christmas and the new year. Uh, there's some sort of technical and behavioural factors behind that, as well as just simply uh, fundamentals. And it wouldn't be a surprise to see that happen this year, I rather think. But as you say, there's been a bit of a turnaround, certainly by the Bank of England in terms of interest rates. And that's had a fairly uh, kind of immediate impact uh, on the markets. As you say, the, the stock market has done well and uh, bond yields have fallen again. So... Uh, It basically seems that uh, maybe some of the alarm that's been experienced in the last, uh, well, since the end of September, middle of September, October, about uh, the outlook for inflation and so on, may have moderated a little. In terms of the amount of business going through the market, do you think there's a lot of activity going on at the moment, uh, Simon? It's a good question. I mean, the data would suggest that it's ticking over, but just anecdotally, um, I can tell you, being based not too far off the trading floor, that it feels a little bit quieter this week, certainly towards the end of October. Uh, during that half-term period, activity did seem a little bit lower, and that's continued into November. Uh, certainly, people don't appear to be chasing this market. Uh, and clearly, as you just mentioned, there are a number of worries and concerns that people have in the wider world. But in terms of the, uh, the investment trust sector as a whole, I mean, there has been some significant style rotation this year. We've seen that, you know, growth value have been, if you like, going back and forth. It looks to me, though, that the uh, the gap in performance between the uh, investment trust sector and the UK stock market in particular has been narrowing. It, it got quite wide. It got about 5% difference, I think, uh, during the summer. But it, it's, it's come down a bit, hasn't it, since then? No, that's absolutely right. So if you look at the stats to the end of Thursday... Um, the UK market year-to-date is up 16.6%. The FTSE All Share Closed End Investments Index is up 14.4%. So the gap is 2.2%. And that's about as narrow as it's been for pretty much all of the year. And you're absolutely right. It did widen out. It probably did go through 5% at one stage. I mean, certainly the first quarter, probably the first half of the year, uh, the UK market outperformed, particularly as there's more kind of cyclical and value elements to it uh, benefited. Whereas, as we've discussed before, investment trusts are more overseas and a growth bias to them. So let's go on and talk about uh, some of the key corporate activity this week. And we're going to kick off with what we now have to get used to calling the ABRDN China Investment Company. Uh, That ticker is now ACIC. What's been the update here? This obviously is a new name for a a combination of uh, two other trusts. That's right. So this week, we found out the result of their tender offer, actually. So um, we haven't quite got to the point where the mergers happened. So Aberdeen Emerging Markets Investment Company has been renamed Aberdeen China Investment Company. This week, we found out how the tender had fared. And this was a tender offer for up to 15% of the share capital at a 2% discount to FAV. That was significantly oversubscribed. So that came in 94% of the shares in issue 
were tendered. So obviously the basic entitlement uh, will be satisfied, but in terms of the excess shares tendered, there's only going to be a very limited uplift. Now, this is not a dissimilar situation we had uh, not that many weeks earlier with Fidelity Emerging Markets. They held a 25% tender offer. Obviously, that was the Genesis Fund that moved across to Fidelity, and they saw 85% of their share capital tendered. So it kind of begs the question, because ordinarily, when you see tenders at that kind of level, um, it can often be a worry inside. It would suggest that perhaps people do want a way. They're looking for liquidity. But the thing that's worth bearing in mind, certainly in the case of Aberdeen China Investment Company, it'd be true for the Fidelity Fund as well, that it's at the moment the shareholder registers are very institutionally orientated. So the fact that the Aberdeen China Investment Company is trading on a, a double digit discount, and this is a liquidity event at effectively a very narrow discount level, a 2% discount, then it's perhaps not surprising that so many shareholders have decided to attempt to um, take some, some money off the table through that tender offer. I think what it does suggest is that Aberdeen, I'm sure they're very, very aware of this, have got a job to do uh, with Aberdeen China in terms of broadening the register. And one suspects that once that merger with Aberdeen Thai is completed, that we will see a big marketing push on this one. Yes, there does seem to be a parallel between that and the uh, Genesis Fidelity situation, as you say. And of course, if you are sitting there as a shareholder and you can, you know this tender offer is happening, you know it's likely to be scaled back, you're going to put in more than you actually probably want to tender anyway. So there'll be a tactical issue there as well. But yeah, we'll be interested to see. In both cases, I think there's got to be a marketing push, as you say. They'll want to see that anyway to, uh, to get the shares moving again. Can you remind us exactly when that merger completes or that uh, combination completes? I haven't got the date in front of me, but I think uh, my recollection is it's literally in the next few weeks. Okay, so we'll move on. Let's talk about the Alliance Trust, one of the oldest generalist investment trusts, I would think it's fair to say. It's been going for many, many, many years and uh, had a change in strategy not so long ago, a few years ago. What have they had to say this week? So this was a, an interesting development, actually. So back in July, Alliance Trust announced that they were going to look at uh, a number of things, not least their dividend level, and they would talk to shareholders and, and kind of gauge their views. This week, they've announced that they intend to increase their dividend level to what they describe as a sustainable uh, level. And really, the idea is to enhance the attractiveness of their shares. So what this means in practice is that the third interim dividend has been increased. And that basically with the fourth interim dividend to follow, that's going to be at the same level. So this leads to a total dividend of 19.054p. That's a 32.5% increase on the 2020 dividend level. So a substantial increase, basically. The board have made it clear that they expect to continue to extend the track record of increasing ordinary dividends year on year for next year and beyond. And it's worth noting that Alliance Trust is an AIC dividend hero with 54 consecutive years of rising dividends. But um, it was interesting, the chairman, who's a, a gentleman called Gregor Stewart, noted in the announcement that shareholder feedback had indicated that there was a support for a higher dividend as long as it was sustainable and affordable. So what is really sort of lying behind this? I mean, the Alliance Trust is, uh, has a lot of shareholders and it was quite a dull performer for a number of years. And then they introduced this new strategy a few years ago. And I think it's fair to say that the discount has narrowed for the trust for a number of years. But I guess the challenge here is if you are a dividend hero, you don't want to lose that track record, of course. If you raise the dividend too far, you're going to basically be putting yourself in, at risk of having to uh, climb down later on. But is this just part of a general trend that investment trusts are seeing how popular trusts with uh, decent yields are? And do you think there's any downside to it for the board at this stage? All very good questions. I mean, I think a few points here. Uh, most shareholders of any investment trust would be one suspects quite pleased with a dividend increase of 33%. I mean, essentially, that would feel like a meaningful uplift. It's worth noting that based on the current share price, that takes the yield of a Alliance Trust from 1.4% to about 1.8%. Now, the question is whether that yield of 1.8% will really act as an attraction to the point that it starts to narrow the fund's discount. So at the moment, I've got Alliance Trust on about a 7% discount. And there's certainly been active buying back shares this year, as they have been in the last few years. So certainly for the first nine months of the year, they bought back shares worth about £75 million. And they're in good company, to be fair. A lot of the kind of what we used to call the global generalists, so funds such as Alliance Trust and Witten and, and funds of that ilk, have been buying back their shares this year. 
But, you know, does 1.8% really lead to a kind of step change in demand for your shares? I think that's the question. But, you know, what could the board have done? It's worth noting that in terms of their earnings per share in their last financial year, which was the calendar year for 2020, their earnings per share came in at 11 spot 16p. Uh, that was down 21% on 2019. But even if we assume for the moment that their earnings for 2021 go back to 2019 levels, uh, so around 14, 14.5p, it would suggest that the dividend might not be covered for 2021. It's, it, they've made it clear that there's no change in the investment approach as part of this policy. Again, it's Willis Towers Watson are the investment managers and it's run on a multi-manager uh, approach. So one suspects there will be an element of revenue reserves used to uh, support the dividend on an ongoing basis. So, uh, you know, playing devil's advocate, one might think that they might have just been caught between two stools here, between you know having a dividend policy that kind of grows year on year and then moving to a more enhanced dividend that we've talked about in other instances, particularly uh, some of the funds in the JP Morgan stable, for instance, but then they've kind of gone further down that path and, and looked to give shareholders yields of three to four percent. So it'd be very interesting to see how the market reacts. And I suspect that the proof in the pudding over the longer term, at least, will that we'll see Alliance Trust trade on a, a narrow discount in time. Just for the record, then, how does that compare with some of the other big names in the generalist sector, the, the dividend yield that it will be if they once they've raised it? So if we look at uh, compared to, you know, F&C or Witten or, you know, Monks or some of the other investment trusts, they all, a number of them have different strategies, of course. How does the alliance compare at the moment? Yeah, so the average yield on the global funds, and this is not weighted average because Scottish mortgage kind of swamps this uh, particular subsector. But if you look at it on an average basis, it's about 1.7. So this effectively brings Alliance Trust nearer in line with the average level. But if you look at uh, some of the names within it, well, you've got Witten on a 2.2% yield. Scottish Investment Trust, which is, of course, going to merge, assuming shareholder approval is forthcoming with the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. That was one of the higher yielders, 28 uh, but you've got funds like F&C, they're coming in at about 1.3. Bankers has historically had a slightly higher yield. They're in about 1.8. So it kind of moves uh, Alliance Trust in the pack. But obviously, it's some way behind names in the global equity income peer group, for instance. So I mentioned the JP Morgan Fund. That, is, that does pay an enhanced dividend policy. But even things like Scottish American on a 2.4% yield, Securities Trust of Scotland, which is uh, now run at Troy Asset Management, they're 26 or, of course, Murray International, uh, which is the highest yield in that particular peer group, 4.9%. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. OK, well, let's move on and talk about Drum Income Plus REIT, ticker DRIP. I think it's a name we're not going to be hearing for much longer. Tell us the latest in that particular situation, please, Simon. Well, that's right. So DRIP, Drum Income Plus REIT, is no more. Effectively, we heard this week that uh, there have been court approval for the all-share acquisition of the of the fund by Custodian REIT. That all happened on the uh, 3rd of November. Uh, and so basically, DRIP's shares were delisted on the 4th. So DRIP's shareholders have uh, been given shares in Custodian REIT, and that deal has all been put to bed. And how is uh, Custodian REIT trading now, now that that's gone through? How's it traded through this particular little situation? Obviously, the discount has gone to a discount, I think. And uh, do you think that'll... Come back in due course. Yeah, you're right. It has gone to a discount. So I've got on about a 7% discount uh, at the moment. And that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of about a 3% discount. So it has widened out a little bit. Is that uh, as a result of drum? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, obviously, discounts do tend to move around a little bit in the property subsector in any given day. Um, it's also worth noting custodian REITs yield is coming in about a 4.4% at the moment. And that's broadly in line with the average for its peer group. Yes, I think I'm right. This one used to trade at a premium before the pandemic, and like most of the other uh, commercial property trusts, uh, has had trouble getting back to uh, to those kind of levels. Yeah, I mean, even in the uh, that 12 month period I mentioned, it has uh, at times been on a premium. It's been up to about a seven percent premium at one stage. Um, and in terms of where it stands within the within the peer group, probably the average discount is about 14 percent. So its custodian rate is more highly rated uh, than the average for its peers. Okay, let's move on and uh, talk about another trust which uh, may be disappearing, at least in one form, and that is Electra Private Equity, ticker ELTA. 
where there's a slightly complicated situation going on there with its last two remaining investments, I believe. So tell us what's the update there. Yeah, so the story's moved on again this week. So basically, there has been a demerger. Host More Group has been demerged from Electro Private Equity, and Host More Group effectively is the, is the holding company for Fridays or TGI Fridays, as it's probably better known. Um, Host More started trading this week on the main market of the London Stock Exchange. So basically, Electro Private Equity has one remaining holding that's hotter shoes. And the idea is that in time and relatively soon, I think. Uh, Electra will become known as the Unbound Group and no longer be an investment trust. And in fact, it will make a move to AIM and effectively be that holding vehicle for hotter shoes. So that's the end of a, another distinguished old name in the investment trust sector. Will be no more. I'm just wondering, how did Hostmore get on in its uh, after its market debut? Yes, its, it's share price kind of bounced around a little bit, actually. Uh, I mean, it's only two or three days of trade, but certainly when I looked at it, the, the, I think the share price had moved between about 150p and 115p. So it, it seems that it's just taken a little time for that price discovery process to come through. Okay, let's move on and talk about another case of a disappearing trust, and this is GCP Student Living, ticker DIGS, D-I-G-S, not necessarily surprisingly. What's the update there? So we, we haven't quite got to the uh, the finishing line on this one. The update this week is that the cash acquisition of the fund by Gemini Jersey remains subject to conditions, which include confirmation from the Competitions and Mergers Authority uh, that it won't be referred onto the, the next phase. Um, we're expected to find out the outcome of their deliberations on the 13th of December. So I think the expectation is that the deal, assuming that approval is forthcoming can become effective before the end of this year. But uh, GCP Student Living also provided an update for the Q3 period. In terms of their performance, they're kind of moving on. Uh, they had an EPRA NTA per share uplift of 1.7% in that period. It's also interesting to know how student property is doing in, in general. And certainly in terms of the bookings for the 21-22 academic year, uh, they're currently signed about 82% versus 99% for the same point in 2019. Okay, so now we can move on and talk about, well, I don't know how to describe this really, the sort of playground for scrap at Gresham House Strategic, ticker GHS, where we've had a bit of a, uh, as we've noted before, a bit of a Barney going on between the board and some of the shareholders and so on. And uh, I think the news here is that they've, all the sides have fought themselves to a standstill. But uh, tell us what uh, what's going on here. Yeah, I think we're beginning to see the way forward for this particular one. Basically, the board of Gresham House Strategic towards the end of the week came out and announced that given the fact that irrevocable undertakings of 47% of the share capital in favour of Gresham House's PLC's requisitions or resolutions, uh, which include a, a proposed return of capital and changes to the board, I think the board have realised that this is uh, likely to succeed. So what they've done is that they've said, okay, the chairman, a lady called Helen Sinclair, she's actually stood down with immediate effect and there are going to be further changes to the board and the circular convening the general meeting has just been delayed with agreement with Gresham House to allow further resolutions to be included that would just allow for, I think, a more tax efficient uh, return of capital. So basically, it does appear as if Gresham House strategic, subject to shareholder approval and all that, will go into managed wind down. Interestingly enough, Harwood will become the investment manager still. And that was really the, the catalyst for the requisition from Gresham House a few weeks ago. They'll still become the investment manager of this fund, but they've said that they will be prepared to waive their fees during a runoff process of up to 24 months. So it does appear as if Gresham House PLC have won this particular battle to a greater or lesser extent. So you might just uh, explain to us what a managed wind down is. And uh... Perhaps explain also, why would Harvard want to um, be involved for this uh, runoff period despite not being paid any fees? So a managed wind-down, effectively when a fund goes into managed wind-down, the idea is that over a period of time, the portfolio is liquidated. Now, why isn't that done overnight, over a relatively short period? Invariably because the underlying holdings might be uh, essentially illiquid, so more difficult to sell. And you see it through unlisted assets, or even those, in this case, these are listed, but they're quite large positions or larger positions in smaller companies. So it may take time to sell them down. And I think there's also an idea with some of these managed wind downs that um, you never want to be seen to be a false seller. That's not a particularly good way to, to maximise returns to shareholders 
um, to get decent realization of value. So I think that's the idea behind uh, this particular one. Why would uh, Harvard be prepared to still take this on? Well, I think that probably they would say, and I don't, I haven't actually uh, asked them directly, but I suspect they would say that this is a mandate that quite suits their investment philosophy and process. Uh, Richard Stavely, who was the former manager of Gresham House Strategic, I think the idea is that he's joining Harwood in December, so a month or so's time. And again, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if Richard, and this was certainly the original intention, Richard would be given this portfolio again to kind of manage. And again, one suspects that Harwood might take a longer term view on this as well and think, well, if we, you know, if we do a good job in, in managing down these assets that, albeit some of the shareholders um, want to get their cash back, that's fine. But equally, there'll be others who might be prepared on a longer term view to look at a similar vehicle or maybe rollover options. Who knows? I, I'm, I'm speculating here, but that might be part of their thought process. So I, I guess um, another question, sort of slightly related to that, is: I mean, do you think that Harwood is more interested in obviously obtaining the services of Mr. Staveley, or is it actually, since it was proposing to take over this particular trust, it must like some of the assets that they've got at the moment, presumably? So there might be some opportunities in that uh, regard as well down the line. Yeah, that's right. So Christopher Mills, who I think he's the CIO, is it possibly the CEO, possibly both at Harwood? I mean. He will be, and he is familiar with, I think, a number of the holdings within the portfolio. So, as I said, I, I suspect the thought will be that this dovetails quite well with, you know, some of the other mandates that they're working on. And this trust is quite small, of course. So, how will it? Do you think it will it trade over this interim period compared to where it's been in the past? Yeah, uh, and it has been re-rated actually through this process. You're right; it is relatively small. We've got a market cap of about sixty-three million or so at the moment. It's trading on about three percent. A discount, and that compares with an average of probably about 9% over the previous 12 months, but its discount has been as wide as 17%. So, as I said, positively re-rated and one suspects on the basis that, you know, the market has considered that there would be some kind of liquidity event with this one. Okay, so we'll move on from that and we'll go back to fundraising. And uh, surprise, surprise, there's been more fundraising. If the market conditions are improving, well, I guess maybe a little bit more before the year is done. But let's start with one of the big beasts in the uh, renewable energy sector. That's Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW. Uh, what have they had to say this week and how does that uh, relate to fundraising? Yes, well, this week they announced that they'd agreed to acquire um, about 16% or so stake in Burbo Bank Extension offshore wind farm. And uh, that's apparently going to cost about £250 million or so. That acquisition is going to complete at the end of November. As part of that deal, the fund Greencoat UK Wind are looking to raise equity through a placing. That issue price will be 132p. That represents a discount of about 6.5% to the uh, closing share price just ahead of the announcement and about a premium rating of 4% to the NAV at the end of September. So the results of the fundraising will be announced on the 25th of November and the resulting new shares will begin trading on the 29th of November. And uh, funnily enough, the net proceeds will be used to fund that acquisition and pay down uh, amounts drawn under the facility agreement. But uh, yes, an interesting development. I mean, Stephen Lilly and Lawrence uh, Fumagalli have been obviously responsible for this one since launch. They last raised money back in February this year. That was 198 million at that stage. Uh, and that was at a price of 131p. So this is 1p higher. So in the context of the renewable energy sector, which has had a quite a kind of volatile year, how is Greencate UK Wind uh, trading compared to some of the other uh, in its peer group? Yeah, so we've seen Greco UK Wind. Um, certainly the rating has probably been a bit lower this year. So uh, obviously the rating will come down now because we know there's going to be uh, a fundraising effort. So I've got it on about a five and a half, six percent premium at the moment. That compares to an average of nine percent through the year. But yes, it's definitely been one of those funds in common with its peers, really, that that's seen uh, a contraction in its premium rating. Though it's interesting, um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk in the media about energy prices and, and high energy prices. And Greencoat UK Wind has been one of the beneficiaries of that rise in energy prices. Um, although part of its revenues originate from subsidies, unlike some of the others, it's probably not as kind of locked in in terms of its revenue directly from power prices. So it has, as I say, it has been a beneficiary. But it's uh, all told, NAV performance over the last 12 months, it's up about 12% in NAV total return terms. And over a longer term, five years, I've got it up about 61% five-year NAV total return performance. Now, what about Harmony Energy Income Trust, ticker HEIT, which is a newcomer. It's trying to uh, 
has been uh, looking to raise money to, to join Greencat UK Wind and others in the energy sector more broadly, though this is not in the same business as uh, Greencat UK Wind. Who are they and what have they managed to do by way of fundraising? Well, what they managed to do is they raised £210 million through their IPO. It's worth noting that there were gross proceeds of about £187 million through the placing and offer for subscription. And actually, uh, there were 24 million ordinary shares issued in connection with the acquisition of a seed portfolio. But that £210 million, that was actually slightly lower than what they were looking to raise. I think they had it down as about £230 million. But they will be delighted, no doubt, that they've got this fund up and running. It's going to be invested in a portfolio of utility-scale battery energy storage systems located across the UK or Great Britain, to be more precise. And I think the idea is that they want to invest in what they describe as shovel-ready projects. But um, it's obviously quite a specialist fund. The unlevered NAV total return target is about 10% per annum. The dividend is an important element of the story. So um, certainly the, the, the target dividend for 2022 is 2%, but that will rise to 8% in 2023. And I think I remember discussing this more with you when this uh, intention to float came out about a month or so ago. It's going to be managed by Harmony Energy Advisors. And one of the things that the media picked up on Sunday is that they had worked with, with Tesla using lithium-ion battery technology. Yes, well, you have to think that's a, a useful thing to throw into the mix. Uh, Tesla this week, I think, uh, I read, has continued to do very well, the shares in Tesla, and it's now valued at twice the amount of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which is Warren Buffett's company, which has been extraordinarily successful over something like 40 years. And uh, Tesla is now worth twice as much as everything that Warren Buffett has done, according to the stock market. You might wonder whether that's sustainable or not, but that's for another day. So this one will be competing against uh, Gresham House and Gore Street, I think, in the energy storage sector, which is beginning to bulk up quite nicely. No, I think that's right. And, and you can see why, you know, again, talking about COP26 and how energy demand is likely to change in the, the months and years going ahead, why this particular investment company and those battery storage vehicles might be getting some traction at the moment. So let's move on and talk about Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust. We talked about its results last week, uh, and it's been looking to uh, raise some more money. Uh, ticker SBSI. That's right. So this week, they announced they're looking to issue up to 25 million new shares at 105p per share. That placing price represents a premium of about 0.7% to the latest NEV as at the end of June. The uh, net proceeds from their IPO from last year, December 2020, they're now fully committed. And Big Society Capital, uh, who effectively are responsible for the portfolio, have identified a pipeline of between 35 and 70 million pounds in what they describe as scalable investment opportunities. And the majority of the net proceeds are expected to be committed within a six-month period, and that pipeline consists of a mix of follow-on investments in funds currently in the portfolio, co-investments, and new fund investments. In addition to that, the, the manager, and Jeremy Rogers, heads up the investment team there. They're engaged in sourcing secondary transactions that they hope will accelerate the ramp-up of investment returns from fundraisings. So that placing is expected to close on the 17th of November with the results announced the next day. So this trust is still quite small and uh, presumably they would like to get this gradually to a somewhat larger size to become uh, more visible to uh, wealth managers and others out there? No, I think that would be right. I mean, you know, this is slightly different. I mean, at the moment, this sits in the flexible investment subsector, but obviously it's quite different from most of the of its peers and it is doing something a little bit different. It's still very early days uh, in its life. And I mean, we talked about the results last week. They would argue that, that there is a kind of proof of concept going on here, but they would like more capital uh, because it fulfills their function of, of, of doing good, but also because it gives the vehicle critical mass and it enables a wider investment following as well. Let's move on and talk about another potential newcomer, which is something called Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact Trust. Uh, who are they and what are they trying to do? Well, they're looking to raise up to 340 million US dollars through their IPO, and that will be invested in what they describe as a diversified portfolio of unlisted sustainable energy infrastructure assets in fast-growing and emerging economies in Asia. The NAV total return target is between 10 and 12% per annum over the medium to long term, and actually they're targeting an annual dividend yield 
of at least 7% from the start of 2024, with the idea that that can be progressively increased. The initial annual dividend target will be between 2 to 3% in 2022, and then up to 5 to 6% in 2023. But yes, certainly something different from um, a number of the infrastructure funds that we've seen to date. Uh, the manager behind this, Thomas Lloyd, has been going a number of years. They were founded in 2003, and they've invested quite a lot of capital over the last decade. I think their estimate is over a billion US dollars across 16 projects. There is actually a seed portfolio or seed assets valued at $59 million, and that comprises of nine operational and one in construction utility-scale solar projects in India and the Philippines. And they also have a further pipeline of assets in India, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Um, So again, quite different. I think one of the other things that probably caught the media's attention on this one is that the fund is actually a finalist in the UK government programme run by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. And what does that mean? That in principle, there's a decision to invest up to £25 million subject to the conclusion of diligence. So probably not a bad backer to get uh, at an early stage. Yes. And I guess I suppose also one should say that because this is in Asia and some of these countries have got uh, perhaps a slightly different, uh, how do we put it, credit ratings involved, I mean, you would expect the returns on this one to be slightly higher to reflect the higher risk involved in infrastructure projects in these areas. Would that be right? I think that would be the consensus view, certainly. And I think also a lot of people would look at this and, I mean, there's obviously, you know, it fits into, uh, again, a number of the themes raised by COP26 recently. Um, it fits into the kind of whole ESG momentum, but also it plays to the the development of the infrastructure subsector. I mean, we've talked over the last 18 months through this podcast about how the infrastructure subsector is really developing in a number of different ways from going from quite mainstream UK-focused projects and developing out in increasingly specialist ways. And I suspect this plays to that as well. Okay, next up is uh, Tufton Oceanic Acids, ticker SHIP, S-H-I-P. What's their uh, latest fundraising objective? So this is a TAP issue to fund a pipeline of second-hand vessels. The issue price on this one is $1.39. That represents 3% premium to the NAV at the end of September. Uh, 28.1 million shares are available for the issue. So this is not a kind of blockbuster, but um, assuming that it's all taken up, they'll raise 39 US dollars as a result. The TAP issue is expected to close on the 12th of November and the new shares will begin trading on the 17th of November. Okay, so we're about to move on to the results. Before that, I think I might just quickly mention to uh, anyone who's listening who is a uh, subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, this week we have a profile of uh, Impact Healthcare, one of the uh, specialist healthcare REITs. And uh, there's also going to be a video and a few comments about the market and the performance of the Investment Trust's handbook portfolio, which is something that I'm responsible for. The Investment Trust handbook is uh, just being sent off to the printers and will be coming out in about four or five weeks' time, including a contribution by yourself, Simon, I have to say. Uh, that's uh, always something that people look forward to. So let's move on to talk about some results and let's talk about BlackRock Smaller Companies Trust, which is uh, ticker BRSC, which has a fantastic track record, I think. What do those results look like? Well, it's another strong set of results, to be honest. These are interim results for the six months to the end of August. In that time, there was an NAV total return of 29%. That compared with a rise of 16.5% for the benchmark index, which is the NSC plus AIM index. In share price terms, uh, they came in pretty strongly as well, actually, up 28%. uh, And really, outperformance was driven by stock selection, despite some initial style headwinds. And they also benefited from M&A activity as well. Their largest sector overweight is retail. But um, Roland Arnold has been responsible for this one for over three years now. He took over, I think, in May 2018, after Mike Prentiss um, retired, the previous manager, But Ronald's uh, investment management report is actually probably worth a read, particularly as he kind of weighs up some of the macro considerations that investors uh, have to grapple with at the moment. But he makes the point that as bottom-up investors, they're very much focused on market-leading businesses, those with pricing powers, strong balance sheets, and the potential to grow. And he kind of signed off by saying, we remain as confident in the mid to long-term development of the portfolio as we've ever been. So yeah, quite punchy stuff. 
Yes, I mean, that raises an interesting question. I mean, uh, obviously they had a fantastic track record and I guess he's now at a point where he's got three years as the lead manager of this trust, having taken over from a very well-known uh, manager before that in Mike Prentice. So uh, he'll be looking to say, well, this is my track record now as well as uh, uh, what I inherited. But it's interesting also his comments. I mean, uh, is that something generally one should take note of when managers come out are very, very positive about their situation and the uh, portfolio they have? I mean, some people would say, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But in your experience, is it a good sign that a, a very experienced manager or one with a good track record comes out and says things are looking particularly good at the moment? Is that something you should be worried about or something you should be taking on board? I think it depends on the manager is the answer to that. Um, I mean, quite often you get the managers cautiously optimistic. Um, if I had a pound for every time I read that in a report and accounts, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now, Jonathan, to be honest. But I always like to see what a manager's doing in terms of the gearing, because often you, you'll sit there with the manager and they'll make very positive comments. You go, so just tell me where you are with the gearing at the moment. Now, to be fair, the way that gearing's used, it's not always and often isn't an expression necessarily of their view on the market per se. There might be other factors involved, particularly if they're an equity income manager. Uh, and effectively, there's a bit of a carry trade going on there. In other words, they're boosting their revenue per share by the use of gearing. But in the case of BlackRock, uh, smaller companies, the gearing at the moment is, is 7%. So they're certainly geared into the marketplace. And as you say, it has got a very strong track record. So I would certainly take note of those comments and, and particularly compare them with what other people are saying as well. I mean, with a manager like this one, um, one of the things I'd be particularly interested in learning is what is he picking up from the underlying portfolio of companies, particularly in terms of uh, inflationary pressures, costing pressures, supply chain disruptions. And if he believes that actually these companies are managing to navigate their way around those challenges, then I would take that as, as quite a positive. And in terms of, I mean, BlackRock also, there's the BlackRock for, for Morton Trust, who's done exception as well. And obviously, that's slightly higher up the market scale than this one. But um, they have a pretty strong team in this area, do they not, BlackRock? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the smaller companies team at BlackRock are, are well established. And uh, I mean, there are two investment trusts, as you mentioned, but they're obviously responsible for a number of mandates and uh, they have a very strong reputation. I mean, just to put some numbers around it, BlackRock smaller companies over the last five years are up 124% in NAV total return terms. Frogmorton Trust or BlackRock, Frogmorton Trust, they've got the bragging rights, they're up about 168%. Um, but both those funds have significantly outperformed their respective benchmarks. Okay, let's go move on and talk about Downing Strategic Microcap Investment Trust, ticker DSM. So they also announced results. These were interim results for the six months to the end of August. They generated an NAV total return of 15.5% in that time. The share price wasn't quite as impressive. That was up 5.6% as the discount widened from 11% to 19%. Some interesting commentary around what this particular manager is doing. So it's Judith McKenzie at Downing who's been responsible for this one since its launch in May 2017. Obviously, as the name would suggest, it invests in microcaps. So those companies, those listed companies uh, with £150 million a market cap or lower. But Downing probably a little bit different from some of the other microcap plays by um, really taking what they describe as quite strategic stakes often uh, between 3 and 25% of the of the share capital of their underlying portfolio companies. And they do have a bit of a kind of value investor style as well. So if you look at where they sit compared to the Myton UK microcap fund and the River Mercantile UK microcap, they are behind, um, certainly over the last three years, they're up 19% in NAV total return terms, whereas Myton and River Mercantile are up 61 and 60% respectively uh, on the same basis. So moving overseas now, we're going to talk about another BlackRock Trust, which has another very good uh, track record, and that is BlackRock Greater Europe Investment Trust, BRGE, is the ticker here. And it's another strong set of results, actually. This is the 12-month the period to the end of August. The NAV total return was up 49.4%. That compared to a rise of 27.4% for the reference index. In share price terms, it was even stronger, actually. They were up 56.8%. And that was a reflection uh, of they moved from a 3% discount to a 2% premium. But Stefan Grease and uh, Sam Vecht actually are responsible for the management of this one. It's quite a concentrated portfolio. The number of uh, holdings kind of crept out a, a little bit, but I think it's still at about 44 or so. So quite a focused portfolio on Europe. And certainly uh, they've got a, a kind of bias to what they describe as kind of long duration value creation type companies. 
and something that benefited from a, a positive view on the, the European semiconductor industry. And this one, I think, is now trading at a premium, which I don't think it's done, uh, well, didn't used to do that before the pandemic. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. They're on a premium. They're on about a 3% premium or so at the moment. And that compares with an average of about 6% in their Europe subsector peer group. Yeah, I mean, over the last 12 months or so, they've averaged about a 1% premium. So that the rating has been pretty strong. It's worth noting as well that this has had a long-standing discount control mechanism. So this is all off the top of my head, but there's a kind of regular tender mechanism so that shareholders are offered uh, some kind of liquidity. It's at the discretion of the board. So over the years, that's enabled the fund to, to trade at a certainly narrow discount than its peers. But the fact that it's on a premium now obviously uh, means that that's less relevant in the, in the short term. Okay, let's move on and talk about uh, Fidelity Emerging Markets, uh, as it's now known, FEML. This is the Genesis Emerging Markets Trust under its new name, and it's produced some uh, annual results for which, presumably, the managers won't be taking much responsibility. No, I think that's probably right, actually. So this is just housekeeping, really. But the annual results for the year ended 30th of June. In that time, the fund generated an NAV total return of 23.1%. That represented an underperformance of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, which was up 26.4%. Though actually in share price total return terms, they were up 28%, so they did outperform. But in NAV terms, the underperformance reflected an overweight exposure to consumer-facing stocks while being underweight technology and commodity. Though this is all slightly irrelevant now because obviously Fidelity has been appointed manager and that uh, appointment was effective on the 4th of October. Has there been any improvement in the in the discount at which this trust is now trading while well, people try and absorb the implications of Fidelity taking over and the uh, prospect for the tender offer that will be coming up? Well, with the tender, we've obviously we talked about the tender relatively recently and that was oversubscribed. But the, the discount at the moment for Fidelity emerging markets is about 11% or so. And that compares to an average of 8% over the previous 12 months. In other words, it's still on a relatively wide discount compared with its recent average. So as we said earlier, there's a bit of work to do there in uh, in marketing, and that's one of the reasons why the board had opted for Fidelity in the hope that they would be able to attract a much wider range of shareholders. Let's move on to some specialist results, and let's start in the private equity sector with Apex Global Alpha. A lot of people being bullish about private equity trusts, and not least themselves, all making bullish noises, but uh, how do the results actually look? Well, this is a quarterly update rather than an annual or interim results. But in the Q3 period, so a three-month period to the end of September, they did very well, actually. The NAV total return of just short of 10%. They're sitting with assets of 1.5 billion euros. But in that uh, Q3 period, their performance benefited from, uh, they had a holding in a company called ThoughtWorks, and which saw an IPO, and that obviously generated some good returns. But in general, private equity exits achieved uplifts of 57% in that period, while revenue and EBITDA, so like profits growth across the private equity portfolio, was up 22% and 41% respectively. So I think this kind of builds on the story, as you mentioned, from private equity in general, that this has been a very good year for the private equity industry. Uh, And that's been um, evidenced by the fact that we have seen very strong uplifts in a number of cases on disposals, but also in terms of the profits growth that's coming through from the underlying portfolio, portfolios, I should say. And in the case of Apex Global Alpha, that seems to support that argument. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT, which does what it says on the tin, and they've had some results as well. That's right, annual results for the 12 months to the end of August. Their NAV total return was up just short of 10%, and that compared with a rise of 23% or just under for the NASDAQ Biotech Index in sterling terms. Uh, In share price terms, the share price total return was up about 4% or so. So they underperformed in this period. And it's actually quite interesting because the main reason for the underperformance was that the fund was prevented from investing in vaccine-producing companies due to an agreement made between the manager and the UK government when Kate Bingham, uh, who's actually the manager of the unquoted portfolio for this one, was working as the chair of the vaccine task force. Uh, And that was in order to ensure that uh, neither SV Health Investors, so the investment manager, nor its clients were seen to benefit from her privileged access to information contained in government contracts. So quite an interesting position. They made the point in the results that actually if you excluded the COVID-19 vaccine producing companies from the benchmark, the fund's NEV would have actually outperformed. So up 
9.9% versus 8.2%, so a marginal outperformance, but it just shows how those vaccine-producing companies have really pushed the returns from the biotech industry. And actually, it's, it's a relatively concentrated number of names. So that was the kind of key takeaway. Also, in terms of where the portfolio is positioned, they've actually increased their allocation to what they describe as early stage companies. That's been increased from 26% to 33%. And that's on the basis of, uh, of attractive valuations. Indeed, this seems to me that would be an outstanding candidate to be considered as a a very successful ESG uh, investment uh, performance if you actually contributed to the uh, the lifting of the restrictions on the pandemic. Well, unfortunately, the shareholders themselves did not benefit directly from that, but a very interesting angle on that. Let's quickly, we want to talk about a couple of updates on some property trusts, uh, the first of which is Custodian REIT. We already mentioned them because of their involvement in the uh, takeover that we mentioned earlier, ticker CREI, and uh, what has their performance been like so far? So it's probably worth noting that we're starting to see a number of updates for the third quarter for a number of property funds. So I think we can kind of breeze through these because they're all telling a very similar story. So in the case of Custodian REIT, their NAV total return in that Q3 period was up 5.5%. There's obviously been a number of deals, investments, including Drum Income Plus that we've already discussed, but um, probably another key number to keep an eye on is, is in terms of rent collection as well, which was obviously a real issue for a number of these property funds last year. It's got a lot better this year. Uh, custodian REITs coming at 94% of rent relating to the period has been collected. So they seem to be moving on. It's also worth noting on the dividend side as well, that they declared a dividend per share at 1.25p, and that was fully covered by net cash receipts and 121% covered by EPRA earnings. That's good to hear. Let's move on to Standard Life Investments Property Income, ticker SLI, another one of the bigger trusts in the sector. What's their Q3 update look like? Again, another positive number. So their NAV total return was up 6.5%, so a little ahead of uh, custodium REIT. And again, a few portfolio developments, including this uh, acquisition of open moorland in the Scottish Highlands for carbon capture reasons. But their rent collection for Q3 2021 is coming at 91%, but is expected to increase further. They're maintaining their dividend for the time being. And then we'll just talk about UK commercial property REIT next, UKCM, which is, I guess, also a comparable. Uh, They've had a Q3 update as well. Again, a very similar story. So NAV total return up 5.5%. Uh, their rent collection has, is coming at 92% for what they describe as Q4 2021, uh, and that's after allowing for agreed rent deferrals and monthly repayments. In terms of their kind of EPRA earnings per share, then that actually they were up 3.5% in the period. So overall, this kind of UK commercial uh, subsector does appear still to be on a recovery track. Okay, and then into the specialist uh, area, we can talk about Target Healthcare REIT, ticker THRL. They've had a Q3 update, and uh, what's the story there? Again, another positive number. So their NAV total return in in that Q3 period was up 2.4%. Again, they've been busy in terms of uh, making acquisitions, and also it's a, it's a good picture in terms of the rent side of it. So they've had 14 rent reviews uh, during that period, which have been completed at an average uplift of 3.3% per annum. So we're definitely coming out of the pandemic impact. That's a clear story across all these trusts. Just a quick word on the discounts in this sector. Obviously, there's a wide range still. Another ones we've talked about, uh, I imagine that Target Healthcare is trading still at a premium. But the others are all, are there discounts coming in or stabilizing or what? What's the general story there? With Target Healthcare, you're absolutely right. That is on a premium. It's probably about 10% or so. So that's, um, you know, being rated in a very different way. In terms of kind of UK commercial, again, you're right. And we talked about custodian breed. That's on about a 7% discount. But, um, you know, 20% discounts are not uncommon in this subsector. So that's where Standard Life Investments Property Income finds itself at the moment. Again, UK commercial property a little bit narrower than that, about 18% or so. And that seems to be the kind of average, probably average about 14, 15%. So it's still a sector that would appear to offer value, but then there might be reasons why that would be the case. Okay, so that wraps up our results. But let's uh, not leave without having a word about the music royalty sector. Uh, Regular listeners will know we like to keep tabs on this one for a whole variety of reasons. And there is some news this week from uh, Roundhill Music Royalty Fund, which is the smaller of the two music royalty funds, uh, ticker RHM, but uh, they've got something to announce this week. 
Well, they have, and they're quite excited about it because they've entered into a long-term agreement to administer 100% of the neighbouring rights income generated from the master recordings of three members of British rock group Supertramp, which uh, this catalogue includes the rights income of 39 original recordings. Apparently, Supertramp sold in excess of 60 million albums uh, since their formation in 1969. And uh, Randhill Music Royalty Fund said they're, they're going to make further financial disclosures following the completion of the investment of their, their C-share. But this week, the news has all been about Supertramp. Yes, and we discussed before we went into this podcast how many of their songs we could name. I'm not going to go through them all, but uh, some are quite relevant to the investment trust sector, I would say. I mean, one of their songs is called Dreamer. That might be a good one for uh, shareholders in Tesla, I would suggest, and maybe one or two other investment trusts. And um, which other ones are among your favourites, Simon? I mean, we've got to get your musical taste nailed down here. Well, I think you you must. I'm, I'm quite partial to a little bit of the logical song. I think that's always worth a spin, that one. And uh, I know there are quite a few fans of Breakfast in America as well. Well, I guess it would be disappointing if you weren't as a research analyst uh, in favour of the logical song. That would be uh, <laughs> seem to be uh, appropriate. <laughs> uh, but of course, I just have to mention, I can't resist mentioning that this week we also heard news that uh, the boss, Bruce Springsteen himself, at the age of 72, is thinking of selling his catalogue. But uh, he's talking to uh, Sonny about that. And uh, that's a reminder that uh, the two royalty uh, trusts in the UK universe are not the biggest companies in this business. And uh, some of the the very big names uh, are still looking to go elsewhere, like uh, either Sony or Universal Music or one of those big companies. Anyway, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about all that in the weeks to come. Simon, uh, thank you very much for your time again this week. And uh, I look forward to speaking next week, where uh, there should also be some good cricket news, I hope. Fingers crossed. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.